Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, we are returning to our study of 1 Corinthians 13 because of our study of the Gospel of Luke and the words of Jesus Christ to those who are following Him. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke and we are found ourselves in chapter 6 and in verse 27 and 28. Jesus says these very weighty words to those who are following Him. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. For us to follow Jesus in that way, for us to live out those commands, we have taken a detour, a side route, if you will, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in order for us to get a full understanding of what that love is. Far too often we think of the concept and principle of love, particularly in our world today, and it is not what Jesus is talking about. And so we are focusing our attention in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, which to any of us who have been in and around Christendom for any length of time, we are familiar with this passage. And even if you have not been in and around the Christian community for any length of time, this passage is still, I'm sure, familiar because it is used even by our secular world, to describe what is for anyone who isn't a Christian an unreachable idea for love. Years ago, in 1738, John Jonathan Edwards was preaching in Northampton, Connecticut at his church, and he did a series of messages on love. And there's a book today that you can get called Charity and Its Fruits. And it is a compilation of the sermons that he preached on love at that church in 1738. And in the introduction of that book, it says this of love. And I think it's a great description of summarizing really the contents of of both the book, but also the contents of the messages that Jonathan Edwards preached. It says this, quote, Love is the first outgoing of the renewed soul to God. For the Bible says we love God because He first loved us. Love is the sure evidence of a saving work of grace in the soul. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love lies at the very foundation of Christian character. We are rooted and grounded in love. Love is the path in which all the true children of God are found, for they walk in love. It is the bond of their mutual union because their hearts are knit together in love. It is their protection in spiritual warfare because they put on the breastplate of love. It is the fullness and completeness of their Christian character, for they are made perfect in love. It is the spirit through which they may fulfill all of the divine acquirements, for love is the fulfilling of the law, so that by love they may become like their Father in heaven and fitted for His presence because God is love and heaven is is a world of love, unquote. No more fitting words, I think, could be said to really highlight the importance of the doctrine of love that the Apostle Paul is sharing with the Corinthian believers here in chapter 13 so that they might be like their heavenly Father who has called them out of darkness and transferred them into the kingdom of His dear Son. And so too then no more fitting words could be introduced for us here 
as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as these words have been over the last several weeks just penetrating our hearts, challenging us to examine ourselves and to ask ourselves the tough questions in and of ourselves to say, are we loving God and thereby loving others as God loves us? God says, love your enemies. I would commend to you that book that I quoted from, Charity and Its Fruits. The sermons by Jonathan Edwards, they are phenomenally powerful. And I trust here as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we remember the context in which these words come by means of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to these believers. The Corinthian church was a place of utter chaos. It was a place of chaos. Why? Because many in the congregation, if not all in the congregation, were in fact seeking to promote themselves. When we think about that, that is truly at the heart of, of all hate, it is at the heart of all cursing, it is at the heart of all mistreatment of others, simply a love of self. It is at the heart of our society as a whole. It is at the bedrock of the ungodly and wicked rules and laws at which our society begins to perpetuate the hatred of others and the murder even of those who are the most innocent. All of this was being manifested in the church at Corinth, this self-love. Each one tried to overshadow the other in their own evaluation of themselves. And it really got to the highlight when they used or were expressing what was to be their spiritual gifts. They had great zeal to honor God with their giftedness, but that zeal was really for self-promotion rather than for mutual edification. And so Paul says to them, I want you to see a more excellent way. I want you to see the way of God. Because even, Paul says, if I have all the best spiritual gifting that could ever be given to anybody, even if I have all of the intellectual knowledge and all the theological topics that are out there and no one has better theological knowledge than I do, even if I give my very money to grand humanitarian projects better than the world had ever known, even if I go out and give my very life in pursuit of those things without the more excellent way of love, God sees it all as nothing. Zero. Without true love, no matter what we do, it's all meaningless. And so Paul begins to describe this kind of love in chapter 13. And we have looked at already five of the 15 qualities listed here. We've looked at five of them, and we're going to take on some more this morning. But before we do that, just let me read again for us these verses. Beginning in verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And of course, the grand statement of them all, which is in verse 8, love never fails. Let's just bow for a word of prayer and ask the Lord to use this in our hearts. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, exercise Your divine surgery on us this day that we would be laid bare before You, examine us, 
so that we might know just where it is we can begin to work by your power, following your spirit, walking in love. Use this in our lives and use it in this place, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now we have already learned about two things that love is. Love is patient and love is kind. We saw two things that love is not. Right? Love is not jealous and love is not arrogant. We saw already one thing that love does not do. Love does not brag. Love does not brag. This morning, I want us to focus our attention on the next four in this list. And we might call these four things that love does not practice. Four things that love does not practice. First, love does not practice being rude. Love does not practice being rude. It says in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. I like the words that the translators use there. Love does not act unbecomingly. That's what the verb means. The verb means love doesn't behave in an unbecoming manner. Love doesn't behave in an unbecoming manner. Unbecoming manner means rudeness or poor manners. Now we may be thinking, what does rudeness have to do with sacrificial love? Well, the answer to that question is this, everything. Everything. Why? Because rudeness is saying in essence to others, I don't love you because I could care less how my behavior affects you. I don't love you because how I behave is how I behave, and it really doesn't matter to me how my behavior might affect you. I'll do what I want. I'll do whether you like it or not. This is particularly fitting today, isn't it? Especially in our social media world. Think about your social media accounts. Here's the common statement when it comes to things on social media. If you don't like what I say, if you don't like what I post, then what? Don't follow me. If you don't like what I'm doing, then don't follow me. And certainly there's some wisdom in that. Right? If we see things that are ungodly, unkind, unchristian, unloving, certainly we would be edifying ourselves by saying, I'm not following that kind of stuff. That leads me down places where I don't need to be going in my own heart. But when we say that as Christians, it's just a new way of saying, I could care less how my behavior affects you. I could care less that what I post on the internet or what I put somewhere or what I write on a page or what I say in an email or however I use my social media accounts. I could care less. What I do is what I do no matter what, whether you like it or not. Brothers and sisters this morning, we have to understand something. Whether we'd like to think of it or not, the social media world is not a private world. It's a public world. It's not privacy. You're not private. It's public. And maybe we all thought that rudeness was just something our moms and our grandmothers used to tell us because they didn't want to be embarrassed by us when we went out to dinner or something like that. Don't be rude at the table. But rudeness is not simply that. Rudeness is acting unbecomingly. It's actually a biblical principle that is opposite of real love. We might think of it as undisciplined behavior. You say, really? Yeah, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Why? Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. 
We weren't undisciplined in our, in our behavior, in our, in our lives among you. We, we, we carried ourselves in a disciplined way. Why would he say that? Because someone who acts in ways that are careless of anyone else is undisciplined in their behavior. That's why Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. I don't, I don't think this could have been a better definition for what was going on in the Corinthian church. Remember, even from our study of 1 Corinthians some time ago, many of them, they had come to their communion times together. We, we, we even mention this from time to time, even in our own communion services. They had come, and they were coming out of self-service for them. They had a big meal. It was a, it was a whole meal that took place during their communion times, and some would come early, and some would begin to gorge themselves early, not thinking of anybody else. It was all about them. They just wanted to have all the food first. And so they ate all the food before the people who had none could get any. They weren't thinking of anybody else but themselves. It would be like us when we have our fellowship meals and you'd be the first one that runs to the first of the line because you always want to be first simply so that you can get all that you can get. You want to be first and get the most. Thoughtless of others. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Their behavior at the Lord's Supper was so bad that even Paul says some of you are sick and dying. In other words, they were so thoughtless of one another, so acting unbecomingly that even some of their weakest brothers and sisters were being more physically weak because of it and even to the point of death. In other ways, women were removing their symbols of submission. They weren't following what God's design was for leadership even in the church. They were usurping their role in the church in order to exercise their own wills. Paul says you're not acting in a loving way. Your behavior is unbecoming. Spent seven years in the United States military, and I always remember there was a legal charge under the military law that was for doing something that you should not be doing, and it was called unbecoming of your rank or title. You could be charged with an actual crime. Unbecoming of your rank. That's what was happening in the church in Corinth. They're acting unbecoming of their Christian calling. And so for you and I as Christians, the height of of rudeness, the height of rude behavior is, is our unbecomingness toward others. In the Corinthian church, it was their unbecomingness toward others in the use of their spiritual gifts. Paul says that's not love. Why? Because love is never rude. Love isn't rude. Love is always caught up in how it behaves and how that behavior is going to affect somebody else. Love is always thinking outside of self. It's always thinking about others. It doesn't matter if it's inside or outside the church. Love is never unbecoming. It doesn't act rude. And so when we are thinking about our own Christian lives, we are not acting in love if we are being rude in our behavior. We're not reflecting Christ. And sometimes we're just stirring up the rejection of Christ and unbelievers who see us as rude people simply because we are unbecoming in our behavior as Christians in front of them and towards them. If we're honest, we know we can be very thoughtless at times. But if love is patient, and if love is kind, then love is not rude, or love can't be rude, right? If love is patient and love is kind, then love can't be rude. It can't be thoughtless. Why? Because God is not thoughtless. And God is love. So love is patient. Love is kind, Paul says. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. And it is not rude. Number two this morning. Love does not practice self-seeking. 
Love does not practice self-seeking. Paul says it does not act unbecomingly, and it does not seek its own. That's a wonderful phrase. You say, why? Because in the original language, it literally means love does not seek the things of itself. Love doesn't seek the things of itself. Self-focus. Self-focus is the very opposite of love. That's the mark of the Corinthian church. The very opposite of love. They're self-focused. How so? There were divisions in the church. People saying in the first three chapters, I am of a Paul. I am of Apollos. The real spiritual ones who wanted to get on the top of the heap. I am of Christ. I only do that. Their attitude toward one another was taking each other to court over petty little issues in chapter 6. Chapter 11, they had issues in the Lord's Supper. There's disunity going on. And then here we are in chapter 13, which is smash in the middle of the beginning of chapter 12 and 14, which is all about spiritual gifts and their self-focus regarding their own use of their giftedness. Paul wants these believers to stop focusing on their own self. Stop focusing on your wants. Stop focusing on your preferences. Stop focusing on the things about you and serve God and one another first. Turn your eyes around from looking inside your head and look outside yourself. Isn't that really the corrective for self-seeking? Isn't that really the corrective? I mean, think about it, right? If we're going to protect ourselves from being self-seekers, being self-focused, the corrective then is to be a God-seeker. It's like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 to the thief. If someone's a thief, he's not cured if he simply stops stealing. He's cured of his thievery if he becomes a giver rather than a taker. See, if we're going to fix our self-focus, if the self-focus of our heart is to be challenged, then we have to erase it with God-focus. The remedy for selfishness is love. That's why Paul puts the superlative there in verse 8. Love never fails. Love never fails. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind, with your whole strength. And he gave a second commandment, it's like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love for God has to be the starting point, right? A focus on my whole heart, soul, strength, on God, my love for God, my self-sacrifice on behalf of God's love for me, and therefore outflows that a love for one another. If you're not loving one another, if you're self-focused, there's a sure reality that you're not loving God. Sometimes we get that passage wrong. You say, what do you mean? I mean that some try to teach that you have to love yourself first before you can love others. That's the world's philosophy, right? Before you can ever love anybody else, you've got to make sure you love yourself to the maximum. That's not what love your neighbor as yourself means. I heard that a lot, even over the last few years. You've got to love your darn. We're we supposed to love our neighbors ourselves. When it says love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus isn't saying you need to love yourself first. Jesus is showing us that we already do love ourselves enough. Love of self is our default practice. Why? Because we're oftentimes deciding to walk according to the flesh. That's the default practice of the flesh, self-focus. In fact, Jesus is quoting when he says those two laws, the greatest commandment and the second is like it, he's quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? I am the Lord. 
I show you how to love, and I've commanded you how you need to love. And so the context isn't about loving yourself at all. The context is about treating others in a truly loving way. Without vengeance, without sin in your heart. So there's no context anywhere in the Bible for self-love. The focus of the kind of love that Jesus is describing is more like the kind of love He exemplifies in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So the command is highlighting for us the selflessness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He's the ultimate example. So we have to remember, we have to think about this. A person who demands his own way, a person who runs roughshod over others' preferences for the sake of simply upholding their own preferences, A person who insists on having his due first. I'm going to be first in all things. It's going to be my way or the highway. A person who is that is not showing love. Love is considerate of others. Always. The one who loves is willing to lay down his Christian freedoms for the sake of the one they are loving. Here is Jesus' example to us. Mark 10.45 He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So love does not practice rudeness, and love does not practice self-seeking. Number three, love does not practice sinful anger. Love does not practice sinful anger. It says here in New American Standard, love is not provoked. Some of your translations may read this way. Love is not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. I think that's a good translation. Although, the word provoke is a good word. But oftentimes we don't fully understand what it means. Literally, provoke is the idea of sharpening by scraping against something. Think about that. Provoke. Sharpening by scraping against something. In other words, getting sharp by outside rubbing. Sounds like agitation. Sounds like provocation. And Sometimes that results in anger. But love is not easily angered. Love is not provoked. That is to say that the person doesn't have a short fuse. When it says love is not provoked, someone who's loving, it is a person who doesn't have a short fuse. If love is not easily angered, then the person with a short fuse, as we call that in our own vernacular today, or to say in the words of this verse, that's the person who becomes angry easily. That's the short fuse person. That person is not showing love. Right? Love is patient, verse 4 says. And in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, that passage that we all ought to have memorized, the fruit of the Spirit, both love and patience are listed there as a fruit. It's an outworking of following the Spirit. So if we're not loving patiently, if we're not kind, if we're not, if we're easily provoked, we are not following the Spirit. Remember some weeks ago our study on patience here? Patience includes the ability to tolerate someone else's weakness without sinful retaliation. To put up with the outside rubbing which is just, if we're going to retaliate in a sinful way, it's just an expressed anger. That's what retaliation is, just an acted out anger. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Peter, I think, was meaning that very idea when he said, love covers a multitude of sins. Right? If someone is sinning against us and we respond in love, that covers a whole host of sins that could continue on if I respond sinfully. Love doesn't fly off the handle at provocation. Now, I think we need some clarity on that because anger itself isn't always sinful, is it? There is a thing called righteous anger. I'm not sure if we've ever exercised it. But it can quickly, even unsinful anger, if we're not careful, could quickly turn into sinful attitudes and actions. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin. In your anger do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Ephesians 4.26 So there is a sense in which there's anger that can take place. It's righteous anger. It's hard for us to even differentiate whether my anger at any kind of level wouldn't be righteous at all because in the midst of some kind of heated reality where I might express some kind of anger, I'm not sure I have any kind of righteous clarity to be able to tell. And yet the Bible's clear. There are times when we become angry. Yes, that's true. We are called to express our anger in non-sinful, non-destructive ways. That's where the problem comes in. Because far too often we express our anger in very sinful and destructive ways. We lash out at people. We say things we should not be saying. And yet in the expression of love... If we love as Christ loves, if we are exercising the fruit of the Spirit and the outworking of these realities in our life, then even in the expression of our anger, it will temper our anger to not be sinful anger. So we would do well, rather than to pretend that we are never angry, Scripture simply says, be slow to become angry. Be slow to become angry. James 1.19 Love is always slow to become angry. Psalm 86 verse 15 says that God is slow to anger. Why? Because He's abounding in love. That's what it says. Slow to anger, abounding in love. I'm so thankful for that description. The truth that God is measured in His anger is immediately followed by the truth that He overflows with love. What measures the anger of God is the fact that God is love. So when God pours out His wrath, it is a loving wrath. I like to think of it like this. Love Love is the brakes on the engine of anger. We all know what a a throttle governor is. It only lets something go so far. Well, love is that governor on that throttle of anger. It stops it. Love slows down anger. Why? Because love is thinking of the one being loved. It slows it down because love thinks of the other person first. Being hot-tempered, being slow or short-fused usually involves making snap judgments, not thinking of others, seeking instant vindication, refusing to grant second chances to somebody. But true love refuses that. True love refuses to jump to conclusions. True love refuses to wrongfully assume of others what may or may not be true. True love refuses to take revenge. True love refuses to quickly judge someone else. But love doesn't practice rudeness. Love doesn't practice self-seeking. And love doesn't practice being angry. 
Number four. Number four. Trying to move quickly here. When I was an air traffic controller and I got busy with a lot of airplanes on one frequency, my boss used to say, if you get busy, talk faster. I know that doesn't make you comfortable as people who fly in airplanes, but that's what happens. So I'm trying to talk faster. Number four, love doesn't practice bookkeeping. Love doesn't practice bookkeeping. Notice what it says at the end of verse five. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Some of your translations say it this way. It takes no account of the evil done to it. Love takes no account of the evil done to it. In other words, it pays no attention to a suffered wrong. That is simply to say that love doesn't do any negative bookkeeping. It only bookkeeps the positive. It doesn't bookkeep any negatives. And the idea of keeping no list of wrongs directly connects to what the Apostle Paul is exhorting the Corinthian believers about. Because some in the church were bringing lawsuits against each other. They were keeping a list of wrongs. Instead of settling church matters among themselves in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of love towards one another, no, they're engaging in this outside the church, dragging people to court, and deciding things in an ungodly world. So Paul takes a firm stance against that. And he says, look, the very fact that you have lawsuits... The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In other words, to fight the attitude within us that is demanding our pound of flesh out of somebody who's wronging us, to fight this attitude that goes on in our flesh, that our flesh says, listen, that's not fair. I shouldn't be treated that way. God's Word says, look, love keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, God's Word says it's better for you to be cheated than to be unloving. It's more virtuous for you to be cheated than to be unloving. Never forget early in my days of ministry, a man came into my office one time, wanted to speak with me about a concern that he had with another person. So he came, sat down in my office, and he began to discuss the issue at hand, sharing with me all the details of the wrong that was accused to him, both perceived and actual. And literally, he opened a spiral binder whereby he had listed over and over and over again, page after page after page of things this person had done to him in the past. And I just remember thinking, I wonder how long it will take for my name to be in that binder. That person was doing the very opposite of what Christian love is. They were literally bookkeeping. Many of us don't have a literal spiral binder where we list all kinds of things, but boy, do we have file cabinets stored in our mind that are filled with spiral binders of things and wrongs that people have done to us. Listen, beloved, that is not love. That is not love. And again, Jesus provides us the ultimate example Right On the cross, Jesus Christ, the God-man, pays the price for our sins. And He says to the Father while He's hanging there, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does that tell us? tells us that forgiveness and love go hand in hand. You cannot love and be unforgiving. You cannot be unforgiving and assume that you're loving. In fact, turn just for a moment over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. 
Notice what the Apostle Paul says, beginning in verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You see, forgiveness and love go hand in hand because love is the, is the, the ribbon around it all that ties it all together. You cannot have love without forgiveness. You cannot have love. You are not expressing love if you're keeping an account of things suffered. Refusing to keep an account of things suffered, of wrongs committed against you, is a clear expression of God's love and forgiveness. Far too often we say we love each other. Far too often we use words that come off of our lips, but as soon as somebody treats us poorly, out comes the list. The file cabinet's open. We're digging for the list. Accusations begin to fly. We say, how dare you? You're worse than me. All the painful memories of the past are dredged up. Listen, I've done my host of marriage counseling over my 20 plus years in ministry, and I guess what? Get, get this. Every single time it starts with, well, they did. That's not love. True godly love forgives. Biblical love refuses to keep a track of personal wrongs suffered. Well, the focus of love is not my own pain. The focus of love is the needs of the one I am to love. And in Jesus' words, that's our enemy. One man said it this way, quote, Some people have an axe to grind, but the Christian, in his love, he seeks to bury the hatchet. Kind of a cheeky way of saying it, isn't it? We just get rid of it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Why? Because we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter to Jesus? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Am I supposed to do it seven times seven? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus wasn't giving the number 490 times. Once you reach 490 there, now no 490. 91st time, you don't have to forgive. No, he's just saying, look, you always forgive. You just forgive. Why? Because that's love. Love doesn't practice being rude or being selfish or being angry or being unforgiving. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, since we are Christians, the love of God, the Bible says, has been shed in our hearts, it, 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 it's, it's flooded us. And Jesus is love personified, and Jesus is commanding us to love. So are we following His example? Are we Christians as Christ-like Christians should be? Or are we like the Corinthian believers, and we see ourselves first? Opposite of all the qualities of what love is. Now I want to just tell us, this is, this is very serious stuff. You say, how serious? Go to 1 John really quickly. 1 John chapter 3. You say, how serious is this to love like this? So serious, so serious to God. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 John, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called His children, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. 
So John is now saying, listen, this is your Christian life. You're in God. You're, you've been chosen by God. You're a child of God. You're not like the world. You're out of the world. Don't love the world. We are children of God, verse 2. It's not appeared as yet what we shall be, right? The full glorification is yet to come. We know that when He appears, we're going to be like Him because we're going to see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So there's the life. You know you're in Christ. God has brought you into this relationship. You're a child of God. He has made you His child so you are to live like Him. You have that hope in you. You know that you're going to appear before God so you live like Him. You purify yourself. You put off the old, put on the new. Everyone who practices sin, right? So your habit of life is just to go on. You don't care. You just profess God. You profess to know Jesus. It's all words, but your life isn't living this out. You're not practicing these things. Then you're practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Why? Because in Him there's no sin. So no one who abides in Him sins. He's not saying you'll never sin. He's saying that's not the practice of your life. A Christian doesn't go around practicing sin. A Christian is one who goes around working to practice righteousness, to live out following the Spirit. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Why? Because he's righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. He's not saying he cannot sin in any kind of way. He's saying the life of him isn't one of habitual sin. He can't go on practicing sin like he used to before. Why? Because he has the Holy Spirit in him. He's a child of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not, what? Love. Shocker. You think love is important to God? You think us living as Christ said for us to live, love our enemies? is important for us to live as Christians. It is absolutely important. That's why I titled this series what we're saying. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who loves. Why? Because a Christian is one who practices righteousness. The one who doesn't love is not righteous. This is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not like Cain. Cain was talking words, but he wasn't loving like that. He slew his brother. He murdered his brother. What reason? Because his deeds were evil. He was wicked. His brothers were righteous. He hated righteousness. So don't marvel, brother, and if the world hates you, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we become Christians. God has taken us from darkness to light. He has saved us. That's what it means when he says passed out of death into life. God took us out of the realm of sin and placed us into the realm of righteousness. We're now slaves of righteousness, so we passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He's not saying you worked your way in. He's saying we know that we passed out of death into life. In other words, we know we're Christians. We are assured in our salvation. Why? Because the practice of love is coming out of us. You don't think love's important? Love is highly important to God, right? Love shows that we are righteous. Love shows we're children of God. Love assures us we're children of God. He who does not love, notice verse 14, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, now he's honing it down. Now he's saying, well, that's a big ethereal concept. Now how does that work itself out right here in verse 17? Whoever has the world's good and withholds them from his brother, someone who has need, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? God says, listen, if your life isn't this practice, 
this, this striving exercise to, to deny yourself and love others, you have to question whether you even know Him. That's what He's saying. It's not, oh yeah, today I hated my brother. Man, I, I realize I shouldn't be like that. And I go to the Lord, I confess my sin, I repent of my sin, and I strive to walk in love of Christ and righteousness. That, that's, that's what the Christian life is, right? First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But if it's habitual, you don't care. That's just your life. I, listen, I'm going to claim to know Jesus. I say I believe in Jesus. God is my God and all these kind of things. But you go around and it's all about you. I'm here to tell you, brother, you sister, you, you better watch yourself because you're probably not saved, even though you think you are. Because he who does not love abides in death. That's serious. Any wonder Peter said, let us be holy, for he is Holy. Can't wait till we get to the last one. Love never fails. The balloon that envelops it all. Love never fails. But if I do that, it's not going to work. That's what we think. But if I live that way, I'm just going to get stepped on. But if I if I carry that out, it's just it's just going to make life hard for me. Love never fails. Love never fails. Let's pray. Father, there's no way this side of heaven we could ever live up to the grand perfection that these words call us to. There's no way. But we know we have the Spirit in us if we know Jesus Christ by faith. We can follow the Spirit. And when we follow the Spirit, we will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. The Spirit and the flesh are opposite. They cannot walk in the same way. Lord, help us. Help us by Your Spirit. Read Your Word and put into practice Your Word. Grow us in that, I pray. Grow us. Make this place, a place that that if we were to be written about and it would be through the annals of history that people would read about us, they would say, listen, you go to that place, that place is a loving place. Lord, may that be us. We'll give you all the glory now and forevermore. All in the name of of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.